Welcome to the Mindcast Understanding Depression and with me today is Christina Young. Christina, how do you feel about the title depression as a description for the illness? Totally inadequate. Not only inadequate but misleading. I've heard so many people say that and I'm saying it from my own expression. Why on earth? Who who dreamt up the term depression? Because when you say it to ordinary man and woman in the street who have never experienced it, they naturally see it as being, oh, fed up, down the dumps, even in despair. Somebody might be depressed after bereavement, after losing a job and so on, but it's different, it's totally inadequate to um, describe the absolute hell that depression, depressive illness is. And at times I, I did feel um, suicidal, you know, I, I, I really did. Could you describe in your own words what it feels like to have depression? Well, in my experience, uh, depressive illness is a whole range of agonising feelings from fear, nameless fear, panic, very bad concentration, feelings of isolation, even though I was with people. Another very frightening feeling was the unreality where I would feel as though I was becoming disembodied. I would feel as though, I knew I wasn't, but I would feel as though It was a sensation as though my mind was leaving my body and going into another dimension. I even had sensations at one time as though I was breaking into pieces, as though my my arms were dropping off. Again, I knew they weren't, but it was that feeling of disintegration. And then there was all the physical aspects. I had very, very severe exhaustion off and on. I uh, I had a bad rash. Um, headaches, I had severe headaches and at the other end of the spectrum I also experienced just a couple of times what I would think of as pure depression where I had no anxiety, no fear but I felt completely emotionally dead as though my whole stimuli and response mechanism had broken down. What do you mean by stimuli and response mechanism? Yeah, stimuli, I'm sorry for using technical terms, stimuli and response. Sensations, it's about sensation. So a stimuli might be, for example, perhaps nice smells, you know, perhaps food cooking or something. And it brings us pleasure. Um, Sights and sounds bring us pleasure or sights and sounds which aren't nice bring us displeasure. And... I would be aware of those sights uh, and sounds and, and physical sensations, you know, if you touch something, but I didn't feel any emotion attached to them. So I would hear a loud noise, and usually if you hear a very loud, unpleasant noise, you, you think, ooh, that, that's horrible, you know, you, you don't like it, or if, you, if there's a pleasant noise, you do like it. None of the emotion was present with the sensations. How long have you suffered with depressive illness? Well, I had a very disturbed childhood. It was a very abusive situation. I was an only child, I had very, very strict elderly parents. My father was 69 when I was born, my mother was nearly 48. They were very, very strict. I mean, I honestly think they didn't intentionally abuse me. Um, But really, my illness, what I call my real um, depressive illness, that started when I was about 20, and I knew I was ill. I started with the, the severe anxiety getting what I later realised were called panic attacks, but it it was a fear, it was a panic. Um, And then I started getting phobic feelings. 
when I was um, doing things like going into a shop, going into the church that I attended and going into work because I had a job, I worked in an office. Uh, so of course that became, well it wasn't just a real problem, it was more than that, it was completely, um, it took over my life. And I must say that what added to it was the fact that I, I realised, oh gosh, I've got a mental problem. In those far-off days, having any kind of mental problem, it was just deemed horrific. And it was the stigma, but a lot of it was the self-imposed stigma as well that I'd internalised, because I'd been brought up with, if people had um, any kind of mental illness, it was a case of, oh, you know, so-and-so, oh, she's in an institution, hush, hush, you say. And I had this view that if anybody had a, a, a mental illness, they would be put in a straitjacket. That, that was all I knew about, that was my view. And I thought if anybody knew how um, ill I was and I was experiencing all these feelings, I would get dragged away, locked up, put in a straitjacket. And I really believed that. So, of course, that made it a hundred times worse. So you didn't tell anyone? I didn't, except I, I, well, I couldn't really hide it from my mother. And she was actually sympathetic and said oh yes I had a breakdown when I was young you need plenty of rest to get better well of course really it wasn't a case of having plenty of rest I had very severe underlying problems but she didn't really want to acknowledge that they had started during my abusive childhood you see but the other thing that made it so difficult and so horrendous was um, of course eventually I couldn't hide it you know, I was off work, I, couldn't, I was too ill, I couldn't I collapse, I physically collapsed, I couldn't go into work. And I'd got involved with some religious extremists who actually believed that they were telling me, oh, fear and depression, uh, any mental illness, that's sin. But I, I was very vulnerable and I, and I believed them. So, of course, I was not only going through this agonising time, but I thought it was my fault because I didn't have enough faith to be healed. So all this was sin. So I was not only ill, but I was terribly sinful to be feeling this. So, of course, all this compounded it. And when did you start getting help with it? Well, this is, of course, going back to when I was 20. As I say, I've had more than one bout of this experience. But I went, had to go to my GP. And I never actually told any medical professional, GP or otherwise, just how severely ill I was. I, I never told him about, you know, these delusions or looking as though things were changing shape or feeling unreality. I told him the bare minimum in order to get my note because I really was afraid that if I told him the, the truth, how severe it was, I, I was afraid that I, I would be sectioned. And I think maybe I would have been. So I don't regret that, but my doctor prescribed... Uh, sleeping tablets and tranquilizers. Um, dia um, well, it was Valium in those days, diazepam, the benzodiazepines, and also sleeping tablets. And I, I actually took them regularly because sleeping was a huge problem. I actually took them regularly for about three years. And um, then later I did start taking the benzodiazepines, the, the Valium it was. And do you know, they're the most helpful drugs I have ever known. When I eventually felt better and realised I no longer need the, needed the sleeping tablets, and I can distinctly remember the time, I thought, you know, I'm, I, I'm feeling a lot better. I, 
I don't, I don't need, I think I'll get sleep tonight without. And I just left them off like that. I didn't, I didn't sort of gradually cut them down or anything. Never had any problems. And with the Valium, if I didn't need them, I didn't take them. I never had any withdrawal symptoms. I never had any adverse effects. And for me, they have been the most effective drug ever. And occasionally, I don't need them much now, but occasionally I do still take them. And So you're self-medicating? Self-medicating. Yeah. And can I ask you, you said that um, it got so bad you couldn't go to work. Yes, that's right. Um, how did people react that you knew, friends of yours? As soon as that happened, as soon as that first day when you were off work, did yeah. they bombard you with phone calls and messages? Are you okay, Christina? Didn't have phones in those days. Oh. <laughs> A lot, or, only or... posh people had phones. Um, no, they, they, they were sympathetic, but they just didn't know what to do. They wanted to help, you know, my friends of the same age or older people. They, they were all sympathetic and say, how are you, you know. And then as it went on, I would get people giving absolutely useless uh, advice that just made it worse, saying things like, um, oh, you look better, even if you don't feel you are, but it is about feeling, you know. And they'd say stupid things like, oh, we'll do something to take your mind off it. Well, that's like saying, oh, you've got a broken leg, so walk on it, you know, um, or occupy your mind. But if your mind is so in such a state that you can't concentrate, sometimes I didn't even know who I was, I was unsure who I was. Uh, I was unsure where I was. I would look round and it would look as though the tables and chairs had all changed shape. I mean, you can't occupy your mind when you're like that. All you can do is survive. And some people would say, pull yourself together, which is an absolutely appalling thing to say to anybody. But you see, they didn't understand. And that is why talking about it and raising awareness is so very important. And you say they didn't know what to do. What did you want them to do? Well, at that stage, I'm really not sure. I mean, later on, when I became more open about my depression and about my mental illness, and after I discovered a self-help group, which was really helpful, I wanted people to certainly listen and understand. But at the earlier stages, where it was all so new to me, I was sort of wanting support and understanding. But on the other hand, I was hiding it so I was it was a bit uh, a bit of conflict there really do you still suffer from depressive illness now um not like I did um the depression and the anxiety that I get now is no longer related to my childhood as it was then because I've worked through all that um, when I get it now, it's much less severe, but um, it's more related to perhaps a current event. So from your initial couple of depressive episodes mm. to present day, something's happened between those, which has led you to feel a lot better. Well, the self-help group, I was in work and I picked up a, a magazine in the waiting room and it said something about... Um, depression and self-help groups well I'd never heard of a self-help group but it was describing somebody's 
depression and anxiety state and it listed all the feelings or some of the feelings that I experienced and I thought oh gosh somebody understands how, how I feel here because long story short yes I went along to the, this self-help group and I can honestly say from the moment I walked through the door I thought this is what I've been looking for because there was no hierarchical structure there were no leaders everybody was um, experiencing, um, it was called Depressives Anonymous actually, and everybody was experiencing some mental health problem, it could be depression, anxiety state, whatever, and there was a freedom. We all used to say, oh, we can take off our masks. We could talk openly about all the feelings I've mentioned, all our experiences. Nobody would say, oh, isn't that awful? Or why do you feel like that? Or you should do this, that and the other. People would listen to each other. And it was the feeling of understanding and acceptance. Acceptance was a big thing. And of course, with acceptance, um, your self-image and self-esteem goes up. And we used to go out and have social occasions, go walking, whatever. But I became so involved in that. And I was very lucky with the people that I met there, actually. Um, Some I'm still still friends with. That was well over 30 years ago. And some of them were, were very into alternative therapies, such as Gestalt, Encounter, Primal Therapy, and so on. And I started to delve into this. I used art and poetry a lot. I found that when I was being bombarded with very painful, tumultuous feelings, I wanted to get the feelings out. So before I would start thinking, or before I could start thinking about, well, why am I feeling like this, or altering my thoughts, which is what you do in in cognitive behavioural therapy, which was never any use to me. Before I altered my thoughts, I had to release the feelings. So I would use various ways of externalising my feelings, and I realised that by looking at pictures of Van Gogh's paintings, for example, which are, uh, it's a pity this isn't visual, but they're very powerful brushstrokes and vibrant colours which depict the, the turmoil that the painter was feeling. And I found, I don't know how I, how I did it, because other people said they can't do it, but I used to somehow merge my feelings with the feelings that were portrayed in these paintings and somehow release my feelings through vicarious catharsis. Now, I don't know how I did it, but it worked for me. Can we go back to your self-help groups? Mm. When you first turned up, was it just a room with lots of chairs and people <laughs> sat down? Well, it, it was in a squat, actually. In, in Liverpool, this really dingy squat up loads of stairs. I mean, these days, it was, well, it was condemned in those days, the building. But a group of anarchists had taken it over and they just let people have rooms. And... Um, it, it was really dirty and scruffy, and I remember we had um, a one-bar electric fire, which was probably highly dangerous. And we we just put a, a um, you know a few coppers for the um, to pay for the electric. I don't think we had tea making facilities. It was really scruffy and dirty, and there were there were some cushions around and some rickety chairs. And the environment didn't matter in the least. It was the people who were there, and they were a brilliant lot. They were really weird and wonderful, <laughs> which is what I liked. And they all had mental health problems. They were really eccentric, and it was absolutely brilliant. You know, I just loved it. And that really did help me to get better. I still took the drugs, if I needed to, the medication, and used the other coping strategies, but 
Um, it really helped me because people were... I could talk to the greatest depth that I ever had because everybody, um, as I've said, it's cases of well, people took their masks off and the, people were talking about their childhoods and, and so on. Some had had happy childhoods, but most had had some kind of an abusive childhood. And um, it helped me to work through the feelings um, and the effects of my childhood. That was very important because that's what was causing my mental health problems. If someone's listening right now and they've got a friend who's just experiencing what they suspect may be depression, what advice would you give to them? Um, to show what is ordinary care and compassion. The care and compassion that they would show to anybody, if, if somebody has a physical illness, they, they would um, be compassionate towards them. So I would say, you know, to do that, to ask how the person is feeling, certainly to listen, not to be judgmental and not to tell the person what to do. Because with all the will in the world, you could say the wrong thing. For example, saying, I think I've mentioned this, oh, do something to take your mind off it, occupy your mind. That could be the worst thing. Um, Make a bit of effort. Again, the worst thing. So I would say, don't, don't be judgmental. Certainly listen to the person and show compassion. And also get some information for the person. That's important. So it seems to me the, the thing that's helped you the most has been talking. Would you agree? Yes, talking openly, but with people who are accepting and understanding, not just any kind of talking. Yeah. That, that's, the, that, that's the key issue. I'll tell you something else which certainly helped me, because I really was obsessed with, even after I got better, I was obsessed with a feeling of shame. It is so illogical and so unrealistic, because if you have appendicitis or you break your leg, feel ashamed of it if you have a physical illness you don't feel ashamed of it do you uh, so why feel ashamed because you have a mental health problem christina thank you for taking the time and sharing your fascinating story with us oh you're very welcome